I want to read a few verses, um, but they're fitting in with what I said last week. Um, when Mary Magdalene saw Jesus in the garden, um, and you remember she clung to him and wanted just let's let everything be the way it was. But they are entering into what was most important time. It was of transition. The, something had happened that is beyond words. Resurrection from the dead. We say it and you can't comprehend what we've just said. It's beyond it. That death was reversed and the whole creation became a new creation. A and she wants everything to go back to what it was. It never can, never can. A and Jesus tells her, I am about to ascend to my father, to your father. Go and tell my brethren, my brothers and sisters. Um, and there follows after that uh, six weeks, 40 days. And in those six weeks, the transition takes place. Because how on earth can you one day be part of the Old Testament and then say, ho-hum, let's become the New Testament? That between that is a transition of how do we become the new covenant? How do we understand what Jesus is today? And I'll put it to you as I'll talk more about it in a minute. But in the Gospels, we know Jesus who could um, call Bartimaeus to him. We, we know a Jesus that touched the hem of his garment and you're healed. And we can take those stories and in taking them, draw from the many principles. But the fact is, Jesus isn't that today. In those days, if you wanted to meet with Jesus, you had to go and be where he was. And that might be 70 miles away. Um, that, that's gone, gone forever. Um, he rose from the dead. Well, there's a time when he rose from the dead and was here. And then he was not here, and he was over there, and he's not, he's over here. Um, but those days are gone too. It, this is a time of transition to where we are today. And that to me is of tremendous importance. Tremendous importance. Because so many believers have not transitioned. They are still living in the Old Testament in their heads. And they're trying to be Christians, which is in the New Covenant. And so with that in mind... That's where we're going. I want to walk through the 40 days and see what on earth was happening that changed everything. But just just to give you some scripture as a sort of canvas of this is what, what is happening, um, in Acts chapter 1, um, and Luke is the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, but then immediately he wrote after that, you know, volume 2, which was the Acts of the Apostles. And so he says, the first account, that's Luke's gospel, first account I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he, by the Holy Spirit, given orders, or I prefer, if we're going to have any of these words at all, um, the one of the older versions of commandments. He gave commandments to the apostles whom he'd chosen 
To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, Peter was one of those, of course, and he went to the house of Cornelius, the Roman soldier, and he goes because an angel had arranged the visit. And when he comes to Cornelius, he says, now, um, uh, verse 40, he said to Cornelius, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, that one phrase there fascinates me, um, and, and that's where I started out with this, as if like a dog with a bone, I wouldn't let go. There's something there that fascinates me. Of all the things that Jesus did in those 40 days, we just know a few of them, but we know other by implication. But of all the things he did, he doesn't mention it. He said to Cornelius, he proved himself alive to us because we ate and drank with him. We ate and drank with the resurrected Jesus. And he said, that's the ultimate, the final proof that he's risen from the dead. I say that fashion, I don't know if it does anything to you, but, but that's what he mentions. We had a, a meal together. We, we, we had a fantastic meal. And he said, that proved it. Jesus is alive from the dead. Only we didn't have one. We had it over a period of six weeks. We were eating and drinking with him. And he said, that is what this is all about. Really? Um, well, I'll say really and get back to it. Um, Mary Magdalene, as I said before, uh, clutched at him because she didn't want to go on into this. And Jesus gently pushes her away, says, do not cling to me. I'm not yet ascended to my father and your father. Now, I don't know how much you know about the ascension. Uh, for many people, it stops with the resurrection. They've never got on that Jesus ascended. And when it says ascended, it doesn't mean float off to somewhere south of Venus, um, as many pictures depicted to be. Um, over in England, and of course I've been through this before in England, we, we have a change uh, of sovereign. That is, the king dies and we had Queen Elizabeth. Now Elizabeth dies, we have King Charles. And when they move from being a prince or a princess and become king or queen, we say they ascended the throne. It doesn't mean that they floated upwards toward Buckingham Palace. It means that they moved from one state of being known to another state of being known. And the one who was Prince Charles is now King Charles. That's an ascension. When Jesus ascended, let me say again, it's not he just floated away up because he ascended. Um, no, uh, he entered into the state that he's in today. And it came after the resurrection. And many would say that that took place when Jesus finally left 
And, and do you remember he said a cloud received him out of their sight? No, there were certain things Jesus did um, very early, right after the Magdalene appearance, that says he had ascended already. Jesus was saying to her, you've interrupted history, lady. You know, I, I'm on my way to ascend. It's as if the coronation is about to take place in Westminster Abbey and someone wants to talk to Charles. Um, well, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm, you get the picture. Um, he was then at that point, he's been resurrected and he's now ascending. He's now going to be declared who he really is. And this is spoken of in prophecy and the one that actually is spoken of a lot. We almost have um, Module 7 revolves around it, and so I'm not even going to go there except briefly to mention it. In Daniel chapter 7, he sees this vision, and of course it's pictorial. He can't possibly say what was really happening. It's beyond his brain to do it. And also, uh, he wrote it 500 years before Jesus came, and he's reporting something that's going to happen at the end of Jesus' coming. Um, and so he uses symbolic language, and he describes the Roman Empire, the ones who actually crucified Jesus, and he describes it as a terrible monster with teeth of iron, crushing with feet of iron, and so the terror of the world. And he says, out of the midst of that hideous situation, he said, I saw one coming, one like the Son of Man. And he was seated in the clouds, and he was coming to the Ancient of Days, or God the Father. And he was presented to the Ancient of Days that he has conquered conquered Rome and conquered all the enemies of God. And it says, to him was given, and then he gives the list of all peoples and all nations and all the families of every part of the universe is given to him. He is now Lord of all, to be worshipped. He repeated that, Jesus did many times, to describe himself. And he talked to, you remember, to Caiaphas, the high priest who was about to crucify him and says, you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and great glory. And of course, many people think that means the second coming. Well, they think everything means the second coming. This, if you interpret scripture by scripture, it is telling me that Jesus was coming to the Father. And the picture given to us again is in Revelation 5, where it says, I saw a lamb as it had been slain, and he was coming to him who sat upon the throne. And again, in Philippians chapter 2, it says that the one crucified, and now he's been given a name which is above every name, but at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That happened as Jesus left Mary Magdalene and ascended. And in that how can I put it? You say, how could all that happen in a few minutes? Because he meets with other people that same day. Well, when you move outside of our created universe, should I say time was invented, time was created? You move outside of it, 
and you're in a different dimension. And it's very difficult to talk about because we live in time and we can't think about anything else. But if you've ever read Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia, um, he does it. I, I wish I could do it as simply sometimes, but he, he does it. Um, the, the children go through the wardrobe and on the other side of the wardrobe is Narnia and there they live out a life. They, they are made kings and queens and they have adventures and, and then they come back through the wardrobe and they find they'd only been gone five minutes. Five minutes, this side of the wardrobe is a lifetime, the other side. Okay, think about that before you go to sleep tonight. It's, don't get hung up on it now. But the ascension took place in that world. And the next thing you know, Jesus is here. And this six weeks begins when he is going to transition these, his disciples, into what it means to be in the kingdom of God. He is Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of the suffering and death and resurrection. He's put away sin. He has conquered death, reversed death. He's crushed the head of the serpent, and it was crushed under the foot of Jesus, the man, man who gave in to the serpent, and believe the serpent now, born of a woman, God, as man, has come and crushed the head of the serpent. He's now risen from the dead. And we face something, something, nothing can ever be the same again. And that's really logic. It's not a spiritual revelation. That if God became human without ceasing to be God. And that human now has conquered sin, the darkness, has broken down every barrier between man and God and has raised from the dead. Can anything ever be the same again? I, I'm saying you don't have to believe it. Uh, something has happened that takes over history, whether you like it or not. He has risen from the dead. And the question now is, how do we live in a new creation? Do you realize the resurrection of Jesus affected all of creation? Nothing can ever be the same. How do I live in that new creation? Why, my feet are very definitely in this world, and yet I am were aware of a new creation. They had lived under what we now call the old covenant of the law and the sacrifices and the temple. He said that's over. The old covenant is old now. It's decrepit. It's, it's falling apart. Jesus has brought in a new covenant, which is entirely different. How do you live there? in the light of the resurrection. How do I relate to Jesus now? You know, Mary Magdalene had come right up against that. She wanted to, let's go back. And Jesus says, no, you know, it's, it's, we're never going back. This is different. Forty days to teach them that. Forty days not to teach them with lectures, but by experience. 
They're going to be led by the hand into a world that they've never dreamed of before. And when he gives them this, the introduction to that, it was actually the angels around the tomb that said, he left you a message that he will meet you in Galilee. So, you know, the geography of, of the Israel, uh, down here in the south, you have Jerusalem, and the area in the Bible was called Judea, and then you had the Samaritans in the middle, and way at the top here, you had the Galilee, which was named after the great inland lake called the Lake of Galilee. And they were, well, they were simple folk. They were peasants. They had a drawl of an accent so that if they ever came down south, they were immediately recognized. They were, you know, straw in their hair. It was a bunch of shepherds who smelled like sheep or a bunch of fishermen that had fish scales still on their face. It was with their wives who had the babushkas around their head, used to shouting out the latest fish price. That was the Galilee. Uh, very few educated people in the Galilee. Very few went to university or even did they could read or write. But they're great people. Jesus loved Galilee. And he went to Jerusalem because he had to. But he... But now he's risen from the dead. The transition is going to take place in the Galilee. That's a big point. Um, and I say this is vital. This is not just a curiosity. Uh, in, in the history of our salvation, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was the Resurrection Sunday. And that was the correct date. It's not like the other, like Christmas, and we don't know the date he was born. But we do know the date he died. And we know the date he rose from the dead. This is absolute history. And we know right now, as we're sitting here, we're in that six-week period. If we're following it through in day-by-day -day history, this, this is it. And it's vital. And I say it because... Many believers do not understand that a cosmic upheaval took place in the resurrection. The very fact that churches all around us on that Sunday that he rose from the dead, the best they could do was talk about rabbits, roll Easter eggs in the name of the wicked goddess of, of Esther, and... and call that that that's the heart of the christian faith no obviously you don't have a clue what you're talking about there is in we, we've got to understand it something happened in the resurrection which meant the entire universe would never be the same again it would mean that we whether we are involved deeply or not we can never look at life the same that God, the creator, entered into his creation and has utterly changed it. Resurrection. So we, 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 we can't deal with this as a curiosity, by which I mean, let us suppose we just believe that 2,000 plus years ago, one rose from the dead. There's curiosities here. 
didn't happen twice, so science can't do anything with it. Science needs at least twice before they can examine it. So here we are, you know, it's a curiosity. Would you believe it? We'll think about it one day a year, file it, you know. No, that you missed it, you see. You missed it. We're not in the Gospels anymore. We read them, they're vital to us. We glean many principles of faith, and, but we're not there anymore. Jesus doesn't live in Capernaum anymore. And he said to us, it is incredibly better for you that I do leave so the Holy Spirit can come. Very few people believe that. They would yearn for physical Jesus to be here. See, it's not a curiosity that somebody did something and poof, they're gone. Um, no, they introduced something we can hardly put words to. And that in this transaction, Jesus gave his spirit, Holy Spirit, to, and he said, to be my very presence with you and to be in you and you in him and there's no separation and there's seamless union. I had to learn that. How do we relate to this Jesus who came out of the tomb and who is now present to us by the Holy Spirit? And that Jesus is here in this room. And not only here in this room, but here inside of me and inside of you. How do you really? You see, you can't go back to the Gospels for that. In the Gospels, he's outside you. He stood beside you. You reach, you touch the hem of his garment. He put his hands on you. It's separation. But now it's totally different. Totally different. How do I relate to that? Well, okay, when we get to Galilee, because he said he'd meet us there, when we get to Galilee, um, what, what should we do? You know, he didn't give an address and said, I'd be on 3rd and Main. Um, and Galilee is a pretty big place. What do we do? The risen Lord has said, I'll meet you in Galilee. He didn't even give a place or time. Didn't say it'd be an evening meal. Didn't say anything. He's just, I'll meet you in the Galilee. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm personally stunned by the etiquette of the new creation. Because what do you do when you go to Galilee? Jesus said, I'll meet you and let's have a meal. Um, let's have a meal, you know. It's a, I'm going to meet the president. He said, let's have a hamburger. Uh, there's something wrong with that. Let's have a meal. I, I, I know it would prove the resurrection. I mean, I could say that I saw Jesus. Okay. I'm glad you did. Um, but that doesn't prove anything really, except you believe, you saw him. But to say he rose from the dead, we need more proof than that. And Peter said, you bet you do. We ate and we drank with him. That is the one who rose from the dead, sat at a table with food, put the food in his mouth, chewed it, digested it, He'd got to have a, a solid body for that. He had a body with organs. 
You, you, this, this is it. I saw a phantom that looked like Jesus, and I felt goosebumps. You know, no, the, the, Jesus sat down on a chair, and if it was a cushion, he indented the cushion. And there's a plate in front of him with food on it. And by the time he's done, there's no more food left. Except maybe a crumb on the side, as you see. That, that's proving the resurrection. He really rose in a real body. He's really still a member of the human race. And he still functions as a member of the human race. But he's risen from the dead. Let's have a meal. Well, all I need then is that to happen once or twice. And then, okay, I've got it. But this happened again and again and again over six weeks. Jesus seems to be obsessed with eating. He wants people to come and let's eat, let's eat. Why? Why these meals? Have you gone through the Old Testament and noticed how many times people ate? And I say, again, what, what's this? What's the deal? Um, couldn't they have done something else? Uh, and, and, yet, and it seems inappropriate sometimes because it's when they meet with God, the one that, whose name was I Am, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, and maybe the most amazing one is in Exodus 24, where this is the old covenant. This is when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. This is when the whole system called the law began. And at the beginning of that, it says, Moses, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel went up Mount Sinai and they saw the God of Israel, Yahweh, under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and drank. Does this, what, what are they doing? And apparently God joined in. And he was a God, you see, that they didn't expect. They said he didn't hurt us. And they had to record that because it was so... We thought he'd beat the crap out of us. I mean, <clears throat> well, they hadn't exactly received his presence too well. You remember, when they saw his presence on Mount Sinai, they said to Moses, you get up there, we don't want to talk to him. Well, now they come and they see God... And they sit down and they eat and they drink together with God. And it says that he didn't raise his hand to hit us. It's, they met the real God, not the one they thought he was. Now this, these 12, um, these six weeks rather, um, this is the beginning of the new covenant. This is when that old covenant is now obsolete it's gone it's a new covenant and they meet with god only he is god who so loved us he became one of us in order to look us in the face and what did they do they sit down and peter's 
quoting Exodus, said they ate and they drank. And it's an atmosphere of joy without any fear. They sat down with God and he loved us and he wanted to be with us. And Meal. What is it with meals? Because the Bible is full of them. Meals is where friendships are pursued. Um, hearts are revealed in table talk. You know, when you're going to discuss plans or futures, you go for a meal. At least we used to. Um, seems a thing to do in business. Even presidents have the breakfast with the leaders and things happen at meals. I mean, if you're going to get a lifelong fellowship relationship, well, you go dating. And what do you do on a date? You go for a meal. And then, then when you've been together and you have an anniversary, what do you do? You have a meal. It's true. Commitments are made and they also renewed and celebrated with a meal. Even birthdays you have a, well, we call it a party, but it's a meal, you see. And I say eating meals is for close friends. It's a, a circle who desire to be together and to be together for no other reason than to be together. To, to share each other's lives. That's the message from the meals of the Bible. God is love. And that is not just a religious saying. God is love with passion. God is love with infinite desire that he will not be God without us. To the point, we've said it already, he became flesh. God became human without ceasing to be God. That he might know us as we are and we might know him because we can relate to his now humanity. And in that incarnation, he constantly desires to be with, to relate to us, communicate love. You do realize that a high percentage of believers never think like that. God is not seen as someone relatable. We don't think of him as having passion to be with us. He's just God. And that's So they call him the man upstairs. They call him the higher power. You realize we've missed this. The desire of God. Eating. Eating is an experience of all your senses. In eating, you physical taste. You have mental, emotional joy at, at the food and at the company. You enter into joyful conversation with these people you want to be with. Even though we are speaking of an invisible Jesus, an invisible Jesus who comes into us through the Holy Spirit, he doesn't leave our senses starved. 
again, very few believers see that. They, they, they said this body is, well, there was a great heresy. It's in the world today still. But in the early church, it attacked this. It's called Gnosticism, which means that anything to do with your body is evil. It's corrupt. And so God could never touch a human body. It's too dirty for him. Um, well, the church still believes that, especially about you poor woman. Um, if you put on makeup, oh, that, that's of the devil, you see, because you're actually making this filthy body look nice. Um, you, you wear new clothes. How disgusting. You should go to early Salvation Army and buy your clothes because you're, you're draping it over this wretched body. And if you're a real Christian, you despise your body. That's Gnosticism. And it's one of the greatest wickedness that ever came into the church because he, God exalts the body. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And the joy gets into your body. And I know you laugh at charismatics who tap their feet and raise their hands and clap and sing and dance. Yeah, you should try it sometime. And, and, and let your senses be made alive. Jesus ate and drank. And we've talked about it before. In where he did it, it says he received those who came to the table, which means I can't wait to get my hands on you and hug you and kiss your cheek and say, welcome, I'm so glad you made it. That's the meaning of the word receive. Yeah, it is cool. <laughs> he immerses our five senses with his presence. And all the Old Testament promises of this kingdom that would come in Christ all spoke of that. They said just one. It says, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and sorrow and sighing would flee away. That's the kingdom of God. But he had all those meals in the Galilee. The Galilee, not Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is the center of the Israeli people. Jerusalem is the center of the law. Their Messiah should come to Jerusalem. No. He was in Jerusalem when he had to be. But he likes the Galilee. Why? Jerusalem, the beautiful temple really almost one of the wonders of the world and and when the pilgrims came from the galilee to jerusalem at feast times and if you've been there you know you ascend the hill and there it is laid out before you well in those days the temple would be in the middle of all of that and and they they wrote psalms just about ascending that hill to see it and, and the temple and in the temple, the choirs of the Levites and the reading of the scripture and the wise men and the rabbis who sat and talked and studied and would answer your questions. It's a place where you heard the scripture, you heard the prayers, you heard the singing. Jerusalem. Yeah, thank you. I'll go to Galilee. And what do you hear in Galilee? Ah, sheep. I said, the woman in the babushkas crying out, you know, trout is going at so much a pound today. 
Why? Well, Jerusalem, yeah. The religious center. But it had been taken over by the Sadducees, who neither believed the scripture, well, they didn't believe very much at all, except politics, religious politics. Dead. Dead religion, dead politics. You go to the Galilee, and they're simple folk. They're more childlike. They listen to Jesus with open mouth. The Pharisees had pretty well taken over the Galilee. But anyway, the Pharisees were not as bad as the Sadducees. Pharisees at least believed in the scripture. Pharisees at least believed that there was a Messiah coming. And they they believed there was a, a goal ahead, a resurrection of the dead. They were not good, but they weren't as bad as the Sadducee. And the, the, the simple people of the Galilee, they didn't really go along with the Pharisees. They, they were, the Pharisees were too educated. They were too highfalutin. Didn't fit in with lamb season and bad weather when they couldn't fish. And the Pharisee didn't fit in with that. So Galilee was still the Galilee. And, of course, the Jerusalem leaders, they saw themselves and spoke freely of it, that we are much more spiritual than the Galileans. They always spoke with the Galile- of the Galileans with a kind of a sneer. Do you remember, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? <laughs> you know, to think, he comes from Nazareth? Oh, give me a break. They said, no prophet has ever arisen from the Galilee. Well, they lied there because Jonah did, but that's how they looked at it. A Galilean couldn't hear God because he's too simple, too stupid. Well, it meant they saw themselves as spiritual. They saw the Galileans as secular. You know the meaning of that word where God is not. I mean, all they, they've got dirty hands. They were, they have boots on that stink of cows and. God, that's secular. Can't, you know. They, they can't read properly. They can't even speak properly. Bunch of Galileans. What, what, are, what do they talk about? You talk about their lambs and their sheep and how they went out to find the sheep that got lost. They talk about the weather that controls the fishing business. And then they talk about the fish and what catch they had last night and what it's selling for in the market today. Oh, dear. Can't we get some education into this conversation? Can't can't we can't we talk about the mysteries of the Hebrew meaning of Zechariah? I mean, here's Jesus enjoyed that conversation. All his stories were it would fit into that conversation. A woman was making cakes. A sheep went off and got lost. Come come on, that's Galilean talk. The kingdom of God is like a fisherman who casts a net. 
Jesus said, there is no such thing as secular. And just to prove it, God became flesh. That sends a Gnostic into rage. God became flesh? I'll tell you what else he did. He sat down with shepherds. He had dirty hands. He sat down with fishermen. Sat down with farmers and their crops. He united what Satan had separated in the garden. The incarnation united. And spiritual is not some disembodied human. It's not a human who doesn't do this and doesn't do that and won't do that and doesn't go there. No, that's not a human. I don't know what it is. It's hardly a No, no, Jesus said he didn't come to separate. He came to show he, God, is inside our dirt and our shepherding and our fishing. He was always talking about the, the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, actually, the will of God, God in all the desires of heaven is now being done. It couldn't have, wouldn't work in Jerusalem. They're too absorbed with all their reading and singing. And Up here, though, it works. Because these simple people are beginning to realize that God is in this. Jesus delighted in their lambs. He went out with them fishing. And when they didn't catch anything, he said, try it my way. You know, you've thought about this. It's very earthy stuff. He got right into it. Began to make it look as if Peter and his other fisher folk were actually ministering to the people, providing them with food. They were God's agents. Yeah, in these 40 days, they went to the Galilee. Because the kingdom of God one day will overcome Jerusalem. One day religion will wake up. But for now, there's no hope for Jerusalem. This is where the kingdom of God is. In your every day, in your work, in your play. Every day in your frustrations and futility. Every day is where the kingdom of God is. That's where you're going to find Jesus. Risen from the dead, he said, I'll go ahead of you and you'll meet me in the Galilee. What are you going to do in the Galilee? What you always did in the Galilee. Peter said, I'm going fishing. And what happens? But as they're coming in after a night of no fish, they seep someone on the shore. And he's saying, did you catch anything? Well, that's what all the businessmen did. They all gathered on the shore to see the fishermen coming in. They all want to be the first to buy the catch. And so they just say, no, we didn't catch anything. And then John says, it's the Lord. He's gone. For, he's meeting us in the Galilee, right in the middle of our work. And Peter jumps over the side and swims to shore. And what does he find? A Jesus who wants to talk to him, to bring to him the forgiveness for being the denier. But also, Jesus had cooked breakfast. I wonder where he'd fished. I don't know. They had, he cooked them breakfast. Yeah. 
You never knew when he was going to be there. You'd be sitting in a room like this and suddenly where's someone sitting beside you? Yeah. <laughs> it was Jesus. They were talking in a room just after dinner and suddenly realized there's somebody else here. Jesus. But then, weird, when he wasn't there and they brought up questions, the next time he was there, he answered the questions. Give me the impression he never left them. In fact, you see, this is part of the transition. You know when you have a baby and you play peekaboo? Well, we do it in England. I don't know what you do here. But, uh, you know, now you see me, now you don't. That, yeah, that, that, that is tremendously important. Because you are teaching that little baby, I am here whether you see me or not. Mother says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And now you see me. But see, now you don't. But I'm back, you see, because I never really left. Jesus played peekaboo with the disciples. And he was making sure they understood, I will never leave you. Sometimes you'll see me, sometimes you don't, but I'm here. I'm here. And then it says that in that period of time, he gave them commands. My Bible that I read said, gave them orders. I don't like that. Well, I don't like commands either. Um, it, it, it reminds me of boot camp, you know, that it's a command, it's given, and without thought, you have to say, yes, sir. It's the mindless, it's the, many times you think what I've been told to do is nonsensical, but yes, sir. And you become almost a robot, a yes, sir, robot. And when I read Jesus gave them commands, I, it doesn't fit. That isn't the Jesus I, I'm meeting. No, and I, we've talked about it a lot if you've been with us in months past. The, the word there, command, it would take very little imagination to translate that as it really is, even though we don't have an English word for it. But the Greek word is entole. E-N, in Greek it, it means to be inside. So, this entole means something is put inside of you. But tole, it, it's, it means to, to set for a definite point or goal. That is, uh, tole, for many of us, in, in a couple of three hours' time, will be lunch. That, that's the goal. And you're, you're moving through the minutes and the hours. That's your goal. Uh, that's not a very good illustration. But it, it means the conclusion of something. Um, it means the result of something. And actually it could be used to prophecy. That is a prophecy of something. So, entole means the Holy Spirit puts inside of you a vision. And by that I don't mean necessarily a technicolor vision. I mean 
a seeing of what shall be, um, seeing of the ultimate. So a commandment is love one another as I have loved you. Well, if I just tried to do that, that's a dead. Um, but he drops into my heart a picture where everybody in this room would love one another as he loves us. That's the goal. And we're not trying to salute and say, yes, sir. We're yielding to the Holy Spirit to bring us to that goal. You see the difference? That's his commandments. They're, they're not a slap around the head. They're the dropping, a gentle dropping. In fact, you hardly know when it's been dropped. Uh, you, it's, now, it's now blossoming inside you. That, that's, that's the grand finale. That's where he's taking us. And that's where I say, yeah, let's go. And he gave them commands. He opened our eyes to see the love of God. He opened our eyes to see the unspeakable, that God through Christ in the Holy Spirit would actually live inside of us and we would live in him and he was in the Father. And that Holy Spirit gives us that inner vision of our life that now is, and I'm still half blind of seeing it, but, but this life of relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, relationship with myself, knowing I'm the beloved, and my relationship with you, knowing that you too are the beloved. We're all beloved together. Entole, it means let me show you how the Father sees you. Let me show you the potential of Christ in you. And then go with it, because I put it in you. That's where we're going. You see, this isn't um, having your favorite text stuck on the refrigerator. That, that's not in Tolle. Um And, and uh, you've memorized in Sunday school for 40 years, and you've got a trail of pins on, on the floor. Um, but that's not in Tolle. Um You've been to seminary and you've studied. No, no, that, that's not in Tully. I, uh, I, I memorize a lot. I'm not against it. I'm just saying it's not in Tully. Um I study a lot, but it's not in Tully. What is in Tully? It is when the word that Jesus speaks through the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us, abiding, being at home, settled down inside of us, and making that word to be the driving force of our life. It's not only the center of our life, it's the prophetic word. God speaks it in prophecy. We're going here. And then, thus saith the Lord, you shall love one another as I have loved you. And I've dropped it into your heart and it shall carry you to that end. It's the meaning of the word. And because of that, that changes my life today. Because now I, I know where I'm going and the current of the Holy Spirit is carrying me. And we're going there. So if we're going there, what about today? We're, we're getting there today. We live and move in that. It's, it, we become the word that God speaks to us. And in a much lesser sense, 
but it's still true that the word becomes flesh. We, we become that word. It's linked to very definitely what Jesus said, I in you, you in me. It's not a command out there like the Ten Commandments. It's just glaring down at you and says, thou shalt. This is inside of us, the Holy Spirit says, look where we're going. Look where we're going. Yeah, he taught them that. That he was in them. And all the commands were in them to become future life. Just a minute. To to a Jewish person in in this, this is getting very complicated. Because our Messiah, Messiah, we've waited for Messiah. We, We know what we expect the Messiah to be. The Messiah will come into the temple. You know, the Jerusalem, that's where the Messiah will come. Of course he will. Even Jesus called it Father's house. And when the Messiah comes, he'll be seated in the temple. He's, he's our king. He's probably seated in the Holy of Holies. And all the priests of the temple would prostrate before him, lay on their faces, of course. This is Messiah. And Messiah is antisocial. Doesn't want to talk to riffraff. He's concealed, hidden, removed from us, the untouchable. We can't even get close to him. And you say that you you met him and he was eating in a peasant home. Um, It doesn't fit. See, it doesn't fit. That he's not seated in the Holy of Holies, but he's seated in a dirty peasant home where where the father and brothers are shepherds and they come in and stink the place out to eat the dinner. And you say you, you met him there. And he said he would never leave you nor forsake you. This is... Because this is, when we say give glory to God, you see... We believe that means flat on your face, covering your face, not looking because it's God. When, when John did that, John should have known better, but when John did that in the book of Revelation, Jesus, in all the glory that came with the ascension, went and knelt down beside him and picked him up and says, don't do this. He says, fear not, don't be afraid of me. Get up on your feet, look me in the eye. This is, um, you understand, this is transition. I, I'm used to religion, man. I'm used to temples and priests and holies of curtains and hiding. And well, now you say he's eating with the peasants of Galilee. I'll tell you what the glory of God looks like. In Revelation 5, it says, worthy is the Lamb. Religion never does that. Religion turns to themselves and says, I am unworthy. 
and full of sin. Glory to God means worthy is the lamb. Religion says unworthy is me. Yeah. To give glory to God is to honor him and his finished work and agree with him. Yes, you did that. You are that. Not to be absorbed with my own shame and condemnation. Giving glory to God is agreeing with him. To be in accord with all that he is. All that he's done. And then glory to God is that he says to me, rejoice with me. So it means standing boldly face to face. Eye to eye, without shame, without fear. That's wonder and praise. Not all of this groveling, wailing, whining. But he didn't come, not only to just he went to the Galilee, but he didn't go to everybody. He only appeared to an inner circle. He, he, to the people in Jerusalem, he was completely hidden. He never showed himself to them. Huh. He's got no interest in religion politics. And I, when he rose from the dead, I, I know many people would think he should have gone to Annas and Caiaphas. <clears throat> Scared the bejeebies out of them. <laughs> you know, yeah. What would Pilate have done? You know, I should have listened to my wife. <laughs> but but he he didn't. He rose from the dead, and the soldiers saw that happen, and the religious leaders paid them off to say something quite different. But he told them already in the rooftop, you know, we call it the upper rumors, the tent on the roof. And that great conversation he had before his sufferings. Um, and, and he told them there very plainly. Well, let, let me read it to you. He said, John, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And in that day you will know, or come to realize, that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. He who has my commandments, that's Entole, and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him, disclose myself to him. Wow. There's some massive words there. Um, first of all, this is a description. It's not a prescription. You know the difference. Um, it doesn't come through in our translations many times because our translators can't grasp it. But he says... Um, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. That sounds like you have to keep his commandments in order to be loved. 
But what it's really saying is, this is what the one who loves me looks like. You keep my commandments. Do you, do you follow me? It's not saying keep them to be loved. It's rather, you are loved. And the one who knows they're loved keeps my commandments. Um, it's quite quite different there. Um, the the word um, where is it? Um, uh, he who has my commandments. The word there in the Greek is echo. Uh, have you ever ever been on a very rocky beach, um, preferably with the Atlantic? come crashing in on the rocks behind you. And as you're standing there, the echo of that crashing wave, it echoes against the rocks and engulfs you. And you are, for that moment, one with the sound. And it's resonating through every part of your body. That's this word in Greek. The one who has, the one who has heard that word and until you're resonating with that word and that word has now um, taken hold of you and, and it's now holding you that, that's the word there he has my commands and and if you if you've you have you're caught in the resounding echo of God speaking his word within you 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 see what kind of God he is and you see what he's giving to you and the result will be you can't help but love no. he has and he says one who has and keeps my commands that doesn't mean primarily there to, it doesn't mean to do them um the word keep there means to treasure them. It means to stand guard over. It, it means that you are watching lest anyone steal it from you. That this is the most important thing in your whole life. You, you keep. Um, in the castles of Europe, when you go, I don't know if you've been in them, but when you go in, you come to the keep. And the keep is where any enemy can't get beyond that. They're going to be met at the keep with a force strong enough to keep them out. That's this word, keep, watch over. And it says, I will disclose myself to that person. That word means to know, distinctly known, not hearsay, not rumor. Not because the preacher said so. You come to know, distinctly know. And to know it as real, more real than what your eyes see. And he is here. Now it says he will disclose himself. There's a strong suggestion there that he discloses himself inside the person who thus knows him, so that you you become a discloser. You, you manifest, you make known the presence. So they don't see him. He said, the world doesn't see me. 
But those who love me, who treasure my commandments, they will, I will disclose myself in them, and, and then the world will see me in you. Which, of course, is how the whole thing worked out, really. No, Caiaphas and Annas, they never saw him. And all his enemies who were plotted against they never saw him. But they were witnessed to by those who did. And they they met the living Jesus in the witnesses that that had come thus far. But then he says, just to underscore that, um, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Why, why is this? You're just meeting with us. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Again, that's, that's a description. My father will love him, and we, father and son, will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word come there, um, come, we will come to him. That word, you've heard a different translation, but it's the same word, is pros, which means face to face. It says that father and son will come to you and you will know God face to face. And then it says, we'll make our abode with him. That means a place of seamless union. I'm one. Abode, that means my home. It's a place I stay. God, God said, we'll be face to face, and I, God, will come and make you my home. I stay with you. And, of course, the word with there, um, it means the closest possible nearness. It means the most intimate connection. It's not only a place of residence, but it's in his actual presence, face to face with the Father and with the Son. He said that that's the plan. Now that's interesting. I just said that they didn't find him in the temple. No, because the temple is now something entirely different. Amen. It's you. Peter, who said that about eating and drinking, went on later to write his letter. And in his letter, he said, we are the living stones of the true temple. Paul said, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Only the word he uses means holy of holies, the place where the glory of God would dwell. So Jesus is saying, the temple and all its sacrifices and all its priests has come to an end. Now, you could get yourself stoned to death for saying that. The Jewish people said the temple in Jerusalem was the center of the universe. It says that God lived there and all the creation circled around it. And now Jesus is saying, the temple, forget it, it's over, it's finished. But these peasants up here in the Galilee, they are the stones of the real temple. The real temple where God lives, where God says, I'll make my abode and you'll be face to face with me. 
It's in this bunch of uneducated ruffians up here in the Galilee. In fact, it's even the people in Judea who don't understand what they're doing. They've been included in this. God's temple is now made of human beings. And he dwells within them. And therefore, in this new covenant, we're not interested in ornate buildings. We're not interested in, in great buildings that try to say something. It's the people inside the buildings that are saying everything that needs to be said. That's where he lives. Huh. It. He wasn't abandoning Jerusalem. They were just not ready to listen to him. And they were not ready to let Entole take place. Wow. They crucified him. They, they paid off the only witnesses they knew to the resurrection. But Jesus already had forgiven them. These were, these were the people that were involved in Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The, these people in Jerusalem, they were the instigators of the crucifixion. If he had appeared to them, as our logic would say he should have, they would have been too terrified to hear a word he said. But can you imagine the journalists of that day? Can you imagine what they were put on Facebook? I'm, I'm very serious now. It would have given rise to the most fantastic wrong journalism. I mean, what? I'm serious now. What would be said in our newscasts if Jesus had appeared to the leaders? and How would they describe it? The only way they would be capable of would be to portray him as some superman that just stepped out of a telephone booth with a big S on his chest. You know, They would have totally missed that he came to bind us into relationship where he's in me and he's in you. They would see him as the Messiah they expected. The one with fireworks and explosions and... He doesn't fit what religion expects. He doesn't fit what anybody in the world system expects. So they're incapable of hearing him tell them who he really is. He doesn't satisfy the desires of the world. He's not a magic wonder figure. So he restricts showing himself to those who want to know him and to come into harmony and relationship with the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And will treasure and guard that word, even if it kills them. So he appeared to those he loved and who are awakened to love him. Those who listened to him and took in the entole, 
of the new kingdom. And he fueled that relationship. And he expounded the kind of kingdom he was bringing them into, which was nothing to do with what the Jewish people expected. And so he, he was in control of his appearing. You can make him appear anywhere. He came where he willed to come. He knows what was needed, and he knows the answer. There was no formula. There was no spell that you could conjure up an appearance. You, you know what I mean. Let's all hold hands and sing softly, Come, Lord Jesus. He'll come when he jolly well wants to. You don't make a spell. It's going to come. We don't have meetings where we just grovel and say we're no good, we're unworthy, I have mercy on us, and think you say, oh, that's good, I'm coming. No, actually you're driving him away, making all those silly dedications that you'll never keep. And um, no, it doesn't work that way. All I can do is expect that appearing at any moment and know whether there's that sense of presence, sense of appearing or not, makes no difference. For he's never leave me, never forsake me. Yeah, boy, could we go on him? Yeah, I think I'm going to quit. Um, we've got another week of stuff here, so uh, we'll keep within the six weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that that is the that's the burden uh, that this started out with. He didn't come to the temple. He said, "Let's eat and drink in Galilee," yes. and that is the beginning of understanding this kingdom. It's got nothing to do, nothing to do with what they're doing in Jerusalem. Nothing. So the risen Jesus meets us with the sheep and the goats and the wheat and the rye and the fish. Yeah. And said, let us, that's where we have fellowship. And of course, I have to jump to the end that he initiates this transition time with many meals. But he's already at the beginning of all of this back in that rooftop meeting where he instituted the Eucharist. And still at the center of our faith is a meal. And in that meal, we learn that Jesus is uniquely here and now. And he feeds us with himself. I in you, you in me, in Tole. And we go to be the meal that the world eats. That's the whole of this gospel. Father, we give you thanks. Just because you are the incredible God you are. We give you thanks that we can sit here in this circle and talk about these things because they are utterly real.
We thank you. That you are there in our homes, you are there in our work. You are there in our traffic jams. You are there in every moment of all that this dance of life gives us. You are there. And because you're there, heaven has come to earth. And in you we live and move and have our being. So we give you thanks, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen.